0: We've been fighting a long time, and we've all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important. Everybody. Welcome back, Steve Cunningham with Sense of I'm back at you again with Dr. Alan Finister in our continuation of the history of the Councils with the Fourth Council of Constantinople.
1: Doctor, how are you doing? Well, thank you, thank you very much. As
0: always, appreciate it. I hope everyone out there is enjoying as much as I am.
1: <laughs> um, Constantinople 4, right. Well, so this is the 8th Ecumenical Council um it is uh, the first one the orthodox don't recognize um <laughs> uh, it's the last one to be in the east uh and uh, presided over by the imperial authorities so uh there's going to be a, a hiatus between this and the first lateran council in the 12th century um so we're, we're in the ninth century with constantinople four um uh, 869 to 870 and um, uh, and then there'll be a hiatus uh, for reasons which perhaps we'll look into when we do Lateran One, um, and uh, and um, and then from then on all the councils will be summoned by popes instead. So it's the hinge, as it were, between the seven that the Orthodox recognise and then the kind of papally organized ones. The, this is one the Orthodox don't recognize, but which is still imperially organized. So hopefully why that is uh, will become a bit more clear um, uh, by the end of our conversation. But um, uh, so um, uh, some big things have happened between the Second Council of Nicaea, which we looked at last time, and this council. Um the, the Fourth Council of Constantinople, and um, uh, so the uh, and you've got a uh, one thing you need to understand is that this is, uh, to understand this council, which is not that easy, is to uh, is to begin to understand why the Orthodox are in schism. Right, so so uh, there was a, a Byzantine. Uh, so a Byzantine uh, prime minister of the Byzantine Empire. So, so the Byzantine Empire is, is just the the Roman Empire in its reduced form, in Eastern Europe and uh, and Asia Minor, um, uh, and and it's just a term invented by historians. So, as far as they're concerned, they're just the Roman Empire. And uh, but anyway, the the, the the very end of their history, in fact, um, this this day today. Uh, which, if I remember rightly, is the 29th of May, uh, is the anniversary of the destruction of the the Byzantine Empire by um, Mehmed II, the Ottoman sultan, who sacked the city of Constantinople uh, on Tuesday, the 29th of May, uh, 1453. So it's an appropriate day, really. In, in a way, we're discussing the remote spiritual causes of that disaster, um, but uh, as we said um uh, for uh, Constantine XI, that he was a um, he was a Catholic. Um, he uh, he him and his brother had successfully reunited the Byzantine and the uh, and the, the, the Byzantine Church and the the papacy um, in the previous decades before the fall of the city. But um, uh, there were strong factions plotting against the reunion and famously arguing better the the turban of the sultan and the tiara of the pope, and eventually they got their way and um, and the city was lost and uh, the, the, the empire of Constantinople came to an end. But um, uh, so several of his ancestors, of Constantine XI's ancestors, had um, tried to bring about an end to the schism, um, and uh, one of them, uh, uh, Constantine V, Um, he had had uh, his chief minister have been this wonderful fellow called Demetrius Kadones, so this is the 14th century we're talking about, and he had um, he'd wanted to learn Latin so that he could be a better servant to the Byzantine emperors uh, in diplomatic questions. And so he approached the Dominicans who had a house uh, in in the next door town to Constantinople, and he asked them to teach him Latin. And the Dominicans sneakily suggested that as a, as an exercise to perfect his Latin, he should translate St Thomas Aquinas' Summa Contra Gentiles into Greek, which he did. And and he finished translating into Greek. On Christmas Day, I think it was, um, was it Christmas Day 14th? Sorry, uh, 1352, so 101 years uh, before the fall of Constantinople, he finished uh, this translation. And uh, and by the time he got to the end of it, he was completely convinced that the uh, that the Latins had been in the right over the Great Schism, and he he, he was received into the Catholic Church. So he's a very important person, and, and he remained chief minister of the Byzantine Empire under under three different emperors. Do you recommend
0: uh, that for everybody to, hey, we want to converse somebody, make them translate the summa contradiction? dealers
1: <laughs> into whatever language yeah, yeah, definitely I'm, I'm sure it would work the question is whether they would have the patience to do it but uh, not that it isn't a great read but uh, um but anyway he wrote various works uh, defending the catholic faith and defending the unionist cause so the unionists were the people in in um the byzantine empire who who wanted the schism to end and, uh, and one of these works, his first apology, he, he happens to refer offhand to the schism having lasted 500 years. Now, that's very interesting, because modern historians generally date the Great Schism to 10, 1054, mm. Um uh, now, uh, but that's not that's that's fewer than 500 years before Demetrius Codones. So, so it's clear that Demetrius Codones is dating the schism back to the time of the Fourth Council of Constantinople, uh, and and that is that's true. Basically, um, there was a schism which the Fourth Council of Constantinople ended, which uh, which was then ha- mended for 170 180 years after that. But it, it, when, it, when, the, when what is conventionally thought of as the beginning of the Great Schism in 1054, um, uh, when it broke out, um, uh, it was really a ripping open of that wound again, if you see what I mean. So the, the, the problem that brings about the Great Schism is the problem which was apparently resolved at the Fourth Council of Constantinople, but in the end it seems wasn't. So that's why it's so important to understand that council in order to understand that this problem. Makes sense. So, um, now, uh, we left off last time with the Empress Irene ruling on behalf of her son, Constantine VI, having, uh, resolved the, apparently resolved, the problem of iconoclasm. Um, now, uh, Irene, uh, Constantine VI was only a little boy, uh, when he came to the throne, and consequently, Irene was running the show, and she carried, and she was still running the show when, uh, the second council the Micaea happened and then um, and then finally Constantine VI uh, came to his majority in uh, 790. Now um, uh, this was a problem because Irene wasn't particularly keen to give up ruling the empire and uh, Constantine VI wasn't a particularly competent ruler of the empire and he made it worse by deciding that he didn't really like his wife uh, who his mom had kind of sort of arranged for him mm-hmm. And it was apparently a great beauty but um uh, but was not having any kids so uh so Constantine six decides to put her aside and uh, this is seen as as not legitimate um you can't even though um uh, e- even though divorce still existed in civil law in the Byzantine empire it didn't exist ecclesiastically eventually in fact it's going to be the bad guy uh, um who's deeds occasioned uh, Constantinople IV who finally puts divorce into ecclesiastical law in the Byzantine tradition so the Orthodox have divorce to this day but, um, but they they usually insist i mean i think they're pretty lax in practice from what i've heard but they they usually insist that there has to be adultery or something in order to in order to legitimize a divorce but uh, there was no question of adultery in this case um and anyway it wasn't allowed ecclesiastically at this point because they were still catholics so um so anyway he he built up a certain degree of unpopularity um uh, his mother was could been booted out <coughs> um he wasn't very good at his job, um, uh, so people were not very pleased with him. But there was one group of people in Constantinople who really didn't like Irene, and who constantly, uh, who consequently, Constantine VI was more likely to have some sympathy with, um, which is, of course, the iconoclasts uh, who had been defeated and overthrown by Irene. And um, so, uh, so as relations deteriorated between Irene and Constantine. And uh, Constantine's popularity declined, uh, and his popularity among among Orthodox clerics uh, declined. Um, uh, the, uh, it also became more and more concerning that he might uh, he might think to make a, an ecclesiastical reversal, and um, so then something pretty awful happened, which is that Irene decided she was going to put herself back in charge, and she orchestrated a coup in the year 797, and um, she had her own son, Constantine VI, dragged off to the chamber in the palace where she'd given birth to him, and there she had his eyes gouged out. Um, now, it doesn't sound very nice. It isn't very nice. Um, uh, and um, uh, this was, a, uh, yeah, it's a weird Byzantine practice which was considered to be merciful, you know, in the kind of Cardinal Casper sense of the word mercy, um, and uh, um, uh, because you weren't, ki- it was a way of making someone incapable of holding office without killing them so he removed them as a political rival um, but uh, he didn't kill them so it was more christian right but anyway so, so, so it,
0: somewhere <laughs>
1: <laughs> so paul constantine the Sixth has his eyes gouged out and uh, it seems that he died of his wounds the whole thing didn't work well enough, to let out. <laughs> um, and uh, the, although there's some some doubt about this, so there was there was an imposter a few years later who pretended to be him, and there was some doubt as to whether he'd actually died. And of course, Irene didn't didn't advertise the precise gory circumstances. You know, she just had herself installed as empress in her own right. Now, this, this is going to be this is going to cause a huge crisis. Now, to step back a bit, to see why it's going to cause a huge crisis. Now. Um, Uh, The Franks, uh, if you remember, are are the dominant uh, group of barbarians in Western Europe. Mm -hmm. And they have slowly gobbled up all the other barbarian successor states of the Western Roman Empire. and uh, over the last 50 years of the 8th century, they, they've got rid of every, everything else, really. They're, and they've absorbed the Lombard Kingdom, and they're now completely in command of mainland Western Europe. And they've even, uh, and you remember in, in, in 732, it's a uh, Frankish leader, Charles Martel, who, who drives back the Muslims from the Loire. Um, so they're halfway through France uh, by then, so it's, it's, it's looking pretty bad. And, and they get defeated at the Battle of Tours Poitiers, how important this battle was from a Muslim point of view is, is contested and argued about by modern historians, but it was very important from a Western point of view, and it eventually led to them being pushed back to the Pyrenees, and then the Franks pushed them beyond the Pyrenees, so there was a little strip of northern Spain which was back in Christian hands under the Franks, getting you as far as Compost. Stella, the great shrine of the Apostle St. James. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so they had all of what's modern we could think of as modern France, modern Belgium, modern Luxembourg, modern Netherlands, Germany, Switzerland, and northern Italy, and then a, quite a bit more beyond that, kind of stretching off into the east. Um, so they were very powerful. Now, an, another big... Th- and, and they were chaffing under the idea that they were just franchisees of the emperor in Constantinople, because the official political ideology of um, of the post-classical uh, Roman world was that the emperor was kind of giving you permission to run bits of the Western Empire, these various different barbarian rulers, and, um, and so although they didn't actually take orders from the emperor in Constantinople at all, uh, they still had this idea that legitimacy was tied to the Roman Empire, and so they had to get titles from the emperor, and the emperor was officially the leader the, the, the temporal leader of the Christian world. And, um, and that kind of worked okay when there were lots of different uh, franchisees in the West. But now there's only one franchise holder. They've all been bought out, as it were, by the King of the Franks. And his territories are probably more extensive now than the remaining territories ruled by the Emperor in Constantinople so uh so he's he's not doesn't really like the idea that he's playing second fiddle to the uh, to the emperor in constantinople and this is some um, uh, this is compounded by a, a number well it has a number of consequences and it's compounded by a number of factors so if you remember the control of the emperors in constantinople over rome has been weakening and weakening over all of these doctrinal crises every time they try and arrest the pope for not agreeing to the latest heresy they it comes more and more difficult until eventually they can't do it and then in 750 uh, the emperors in constantinople lose control of their northern italian hq ravenna and uh, they also lose control of rome itself now the reason that happens is um they've they've not as we've s- been discussing they've not really been in control of it anyway but the popes are kind of in control of it de facto by default mm-hmm. um, they don't have huge armies and things and resources in order to maintain control and the lombards are consequently becoming more and more of a problem it's not clear that they're going to be able to deal with the lombards uh, so they the, the people especially protected from the lombards the byzantine emperors are uh, often falling into heresy and trying to bully them and sometimes even kill them um, so that's not really helpful but the lombards themselves although they've now become catholic um, recently, they converted to Catholicism from Marianism, but the, but the Pope still don't want to be ruled by them, so they're a bit nervous. Now, um, this happens to fit in with a problem that the Franks have, which is that um, the Frankish dynasty is called the Merovingian dynasty, and uh, they seem to have a practice of only marrying other members of the Merovingian dynasty. And as the Habsburgs will find out many, many, many centuries later, marrying your cousins again and again and again for generation after generation can cause problems. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, the, and the usual sort of standard problem, the way this is described, is basic. Also, they have this funny thing that they never cut their hair. Why they didn't ever cut their hair is also unclear. Probably lost in the, this is the Merovingian rulers, not the Franks in general, mm. lost in, uh, in, the, in the misty antiquity of Frankish paganism or something. But anyway, they never used to cut their hair. So you end up with basically these kind of dribbly inbred uh, Merovingian kings who aren't really able to run anything and uh, so slowly a a, a subordinate dynasty who come to be called the Carolingians, Arise, who are basically the hereditary prime ministers who actually run uh, the Frankish kingdom. But they, so there's Charles Martel, who won this great victory in 732. He wasn't actually the king of the Franks. He was what's called mayor of the palace, which is basically uh, the prime minister. Mm-hmm. But it's a hereditary prime minister job. And um, so his son, uh, when we reach the middle of the 8th century, his son, Pepin the Short, uh, is now running Francia as it gets called and um and he's sort of fed up with the fact that he's not actually the king and uh, and childeric the the merovingian king is just kind of sitting there dribbling and not doing a lot so so um so Pepin writes to the Pope, Pope Zachary, who's then reigning, and says, uh, basically, uh, I hear you've been having a bit of trouble with the Lombards breathing down your neck. Byzantine's highly unreliable, can't protect you. Often they're there, menacing themselves. Lombards might be trying to seize hold of Rome and push you around. Um, I was wondering if I could help in any way. Um, You know, I was thinking of taking a holiday in central Italy with a massive army. Um, Let me know if you think that would be a nice place to visit. You know, if you could show me around and perhaps I could help you out with some of these problems. Um, On a completely different note, your holiness, totally unrelated. um, I'm really worrying, troubled in conscience about the fact that um, I... uh, about the fact that Childeric here is actually the king, but I'm the one ruling. Is that really right? The word king means ruler. Shouldn't the guy who rules be the one who's called king or the one who's called king actually be ruling? You know, it needs to be resolved one with, oh, it seems strikes me. I'm very worried that I'm not doing the right thing here by not being king. And I was wondering if you could help me with this little crisis of conscience. And uh, do let me know about that holiday in Central Italy. So then Pope Zachary writes back and says, "Uh, it'd be lovely to see you in Central Italy and do bring all your friends heavily armed friends that would be lovely too and um, uh, on the completely unrelated question yes I think that might be a bit of a difficulty and and let's see if we could arrange for say Childric to have his hair cut off and sent off to a monastery and then we could have you anointed king of the Franks instead I don't know, might work. Anyway, so so as a consequence, that's basically what happens. Childeric sent off uh, into a monastery, has his hair cut off, um, and um, uh, the Franks send the, the boys down and they kick the Lombards out of central Italy and they give the Pope... It's called the Donation of Pepin. They give him the area around Rome as his own actual territory. So that's Mm -hmm. the, although the Popes have actually been effectively ruling Rome for a long time, this is the first time they're actually officially ruling Rome. So that's the foundation of the papal state, which survived until 1870 when it was invaded by the nasty liberal Italian nationalists. Um, uh, So, um, so the result is that the pope is now no longer a subject of the Byzantine emperor or of anybody mm-hmm. although he's he's kind of got to be nice to the Franks who've helped him out on this subject and uh, and then a few decades later Pepin's son Charles known as Charles the Great or Charlemagne um uh, he um he then conquers the Lombard kingdom entirely and annexes it to the kingdom of the Franks. Um, so by the time we get to this moment when uh, Irene uh, gouges out her son's eyes, uh, the, the, uh, the, the Frankish king is ruling, uh, Is well, he's not actually technically ruling Rome, although he's given the title of patrician of the Romans, which gives him a sort of special status mm-hmm. inside the new papal state. But he's just there just on the edge of the papal state and he's massively powerful. Um now, uh the Franks, as I say, have been chaffing under the bit about the um about the fact that they're technically inferior to the Byzantine Emperors. And they seem to be basically trying to start fights, doctrinal fights with the Byzantine emperors. Uh, and of course this has been in order that they can throw off their authority altogether. And of course this has been frustrated by the fact that the major heresy which the emperors in constantinople have been pushing for the last uh, you know half century has just been abandoned so they can't they can't easily just say, oh, wicked iconoclasts, we no longer recognize you because because they, they're not iconoclasts anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so two things, they try two things. One is that they um, they, they start getting sniffy about the acts of, Constant- of of Nicaea II. They say, well, you know, hang on, uh, this sounds a bit idolatrous to us. You've gone too far in the other direction. And uh, it seems they had a dodgy translation of the acts of, of, of Nicaea II, but they were kind of milking it for everything it was worth. And they even hold a kind of local council where they get annoyed about it. The Pope is really worried because the, uh, Rome is a very Latin and Greek place. There's lots of people who speak Greek, lots of people who speak Latin. Mm-hmm. It's it's one of the it's one of the few places where the two worlds connect. Um, and the Popes are really pleased Iconoclasm is over, and they really don't want the Franks messing it up. So, but they also don't want to annoy the Franks because they're their new benefactors. So uh, the Popes are very worried about about this this sniffiness about Nicaea too. The other the problem which begins to kick off is in Jerusalem. There's a monastery of, um, of Frankish monks, and they notice that the um, uh, that the Greek monks, when they sing the creed in the liturgy, don't say uh, the filioque. They don't say uh, who proceeds from the father and the son. They just say who proceeds from the father. And they denounce the Greek monks in Jerusalem for having removed the filioque from the creed. Um, Now, this is a deeply illiterate thing for the Frankish monks to do, because, in fact, it's the other way around. So, um, uh, see, what what happened was, is um, another group of Aryan barbarians who had converted to uh, Catholicism, Many centuries earlier was the Visigoths, Mm -hmm. who converted to Catholicism at the end of the sixth century, Um, and um, uh, and at the time of their conversion, a great council was held, a great local council called the the Third Council of Toledo, and. um, uh, to just kind of regularize everything and, and, and set Spain up as a fully officially Catholic country. So previously it had been the Roman population were Catholic and the ruling Visigothic barbarian population were Aryans. But now they were converting to Catholicism and it was all going to be settled at this third council of Toledo. And um, one of the, 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 up to that point, it had been in the Byzantine rite, they had sung the creed during the, the Eucharist. But we didn't do that in the Roman rite. But the, um, if you remember, there was a little bit of Spain that had been held on to by the Byzantines. So, mm-hmm. so they still had a bit there at that time, back in the 6th in sixth, sixth century. And um, so they kind of noticed that the that the Byzantines were, were singing the creed in the liturgy They thought that was quite nice. And now the, the everyone was all going to be friends together, Visigoths and, and native Spaniards together. So they thought, and, and they were rejecting Arianism, so they thought they would include the creed of... Um, of constantinople one um with the one that we sing at mass um into the liturgy and that's the first time in the roman liturgy that the creed is sung at mass but they notice uh, then that the that this creed doesn't it looks weird to the latins that this creed doesn't have the 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 phrase filioque and the sun in it so they they so they add that in um, and uh, and then it becomes really popular. Eventually, the Visigothic kingdom is destroyed by the Muslims. But in the meantime, the Franks see that the Visigoths are singing the creed at mass. They think that's rather nice, and they start singing the creed at mass as well. And they take on the the tones that the that the Visigoths are using, and that includes this filioque, this added clause. So, but in Rome, the popes are still not singing the creed at mass because that's not how it's done in the Roman rites. And um, but by the time we're getting to the end of um, getting to the end of the 8th century, pretty much everywhere else in the West they're singing the Creed at Mass, but not in Rome. The Roman usage of the Roman Rite does not include the Creed at Mass. So everybody's using this, this phrase filioque. Now, uh, the, the problem is there's a difficulty with this phrase. Um, uh, and the, the reason there's a difficulty is a bit to do with um, John chapter 8, verse 42. And where's my Bible? And John, cha- I always forget the second one. It's John chapter fifteen, verse twenty-six. I think. Oh, grab me Bible here. Um, uh, now, um, John chapter eight. Uh, well, John chapter eight, verse forty-two says i proceeded and came forth from god right and it's it's our lord himself speaking right and and that's how it's is written in in latin using the the latin word procedere right and uh, john 15:26 i think let's find it 15:26 uh, but when the paraclete cometh, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceedeth from the Father, he shall give testimony of me, right? Mm-hmm. And again, in the Latin, it's it's this same word, proceed, procedere, right? In, in, in the Latin as well, right? So so in John 8.42 and John 15.26, the word proceed is used to describe how the Son comes from the Father in the first of those two verses, and how the Spirit comes from the Father in, in the... Um, in the second verse right um and so for the latins the word proceed is uh, generic right it, it's it's a it's a word for how one divine person comes from another divine person and it's not a special word for the holy spirit right however in greek they're two different words um uh, in 842 it's excelphon and uh, in uh, Fort in 1526, it's poroetai, right? So there are two different words, and the second of those two words, the one the one used for the spirit in 1526, is uh, a, v- a variant of that word. Is used to dis- in the Creed of Constantinople I uh, when uh, it says uh, and in the Holy Spirit uh, who proceeds from the father right so so for the greeks the word proceed is a specific word for how the spirit it's like generated Mm -hmm. so we only use generated or begotten about the son we don't ever use it about the spirit but the word that we use for the spirit uh is 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 also a word that we use for the son whereas for the greeks there's two different words Mm -hmm. the son the son is begotten and the spirit proceeds Mm -hmm. okay so um now, uh, so the problem is, now, how, what's the difference between preceding and begetting, okay? Now, uh, in this, the fathers, uh, the Greek fathers are, are at, as one, uh, contrary to what the Orthodox would want to be, the Greek fathers are as one with the Latin tradition. They they hold that the, what, what distinguishes the two is that the son comes from the father in uh, Immediately, as it were, whereas the whereas the spirit comes from the father through the son, right? Mm-hmm. That is the distinction between between the, the way in which the the um, son comes forth from the father and the way the spirit comes forth from the father. Therefore, in Greek terms it's the distinction between generation and procession. Mm-hmm. Um, however um, uh, so, so that well, that then means that if for the Latins to say that the spirit proceeds from the father and the son makes no sense, okay, because that would if procession is emanation from one divine person through another divine person, to say that the spirit proceeds from the father and the son would mean the spirit comes forth from the father through another divine person, and then from the son through another divine person, and that would give us one too many divine persons, right? <laughs> Do you what I mean? So, so, so. Well, the, the two. So, if you look at, for example, the Athanasian Creed. Now, there's a big dispute as to who who wrote the Athanasian Creed. Whether it's written by Saint Athanasius or not, and lots of people want to claim that it isn't written by Saint Athanasius, um, and it's it only really exists in Latin. Any Greek versions are clearly translations from the Latin made much later. But the old legend about it was that it was produced by Saint Athanasius when he was in exile in the West to show Pope Julius the uh, First that he was a sound Orthodox chap, and that he gave him the statement of faith. Now. Whether or not that's, that legend is correct or not, uh, it fits a bit with the phrasing, because when the Athanasian Creed describes the filioque, what we call the filioque in the West, um, it's careful not to use the word proceed in the Latin sense. It says, so it's, it sounds like it's written, been written by Greek, even though it's in Latin. So it says um, some, says it says, I hope I get this right, but it says the uh, the son, uh, son is of the father, not created But begotten, right? Mm -hmm. The Spirit is of the Father and the Son, not created nor begotten, but proceeding, right? So so it asserts the doctrine, but it doesn't use the word it it uses the word procession Mm -hmm. in such a way as doesn't distinguish between the Latin way of using it and the Greek way of using it. So it avoids difficulties but adding filioque to the creed uh means that it only makes sense if you're using it in the in the latin sense and from the greek sense it sounds a bit weird now fortunately that didn't cause a problem until the ninth century because um the Byzantines didn't care what the latins were doing they thought the latins were um dreadful barbarians uh, could can't eat properly um you know um, don't wash etc et so who cares what they're doing <laughs> um and um uh, it had only really come up once um, uh, because um, uh, during the time of the monothelite controversy, because uh, the the Monothel- the anti monothelites, the orthodox people in the east were often appealing to the authority of the popes, who, with the exception of the wobbly Honorius, uh, had been firmly defending um, uh, the true faith, um, and so the uh, so the the the, the, the pro Orthodox Party, uh, particularly famously exemplified by uh, St. Maximus the Confessor, mm-hmm. um, uh, were appealing to the authority of the popes who were backing up the uh, the true doctrine concerning our Lord's human will. And so that the, the monothelites were saying, oh, yeah, yeah. But so they were looking for ammunition against the popes. So like, oh, but these Latins, look at this filioque thing. That looks pretty dodgy. And, and then they, they, they sing that in their creed. Of course, they, they don't sing it in the creed in Rome, but they do sing it in the creed in in um, elsewhere in the west uh, the, the the roman creed was actually the apostles creed which but that was only used for baptism because originally creeds are for baptisms it was a novelty that sometimes introduced it into the eucharist anyway so uh, maximus the confessor said oh yes, yeah, just a translation problem yes yeah, nothing nothing significant it's it's a quarrel over words and it's not even a quarrel except for you dodgy heretics who are trying to discredit the pope's fear and evil reasons shut up and uh, so that was the only time that it had ever ever come up and maximus the confessor correctly clocked uh, that it that it was uh, probably because he spent a lot of time in North Africa, which is a, which is which uh, was still then not yet in the hands of the Muslims, and uh, was a Latin province, so he, being a Greek, was, was nevertheless more familiar with the Latin, so it was more possibility of avoiding this understanding. But anyway, so these Frankish monks at the end of the 8th century, they were saying, oh, you've removed the filioque from the creed heretics, right, which is ridiculous and embarrassing um, for them to say that, and... Um, uh, but, um, but it shows that the Franks, along with this thing about quibbling over Nicaea too, were really keen to find a way of splitting off from the, uh, from the Byzantines. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but then they did, suddenly they didn't have to. Right? The reason they didn't have to is because this terrible, egregious act had happened. The Empress had gouged out the eyes of her own son, and she was now claiming to be the Empress. And In fact, occasionally, instead of calling herself Basilisa, Empress, she would call herself Basileus in the masculine, which is the Greek word used for the Emperor and uh, the reason for this is because Roman law says that a woman can't hold office so there's a legal problem with her claiming to be empress in her own right and um, now uh, but that of course provides because she's deposed the rightful emperor and she's now sitting on the throne claiming to be the emperor when obviously she can't be um, uh, is is provides the Franks with with an obvious explanation of why they can split off from Byzantium but obviously it's not going to be it's not that's not going to last forever, and it, it doesn't last forever. She gets deposed in 802. Um, but, um, uh,
0: but after you gouge out your kids' eyeballs, no one's going to mess for you. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, but they're not going to want you messing with them either. So, so they, <laughs> um, So, uh, so there's this kind of window of illegitimacy in Constantinople because of the activities of Irene. Now uh, this this is causing, but it causes more of a problem than it otherwise would have done for a really strange reason, right? Which is that there's a legend going back to very very early in the history of the church. It's mentioned in the letter of Di- to Diognetus of the second century, second century Christian writing. It's mentioned by Lactantius uh, in at the time Constantine. He was he was a Christian Latin author who was the tutor to Constantine's son, and I think Saint Irenaeus of Lyon as well might mention it as well. So this legend that that the word the world would only last six thousand years, and at the end of this six thousand years, the Antichrist would arise. Now, whether that means the Antichrist would be born or the Antichrist would seize power in the years in the six thousandth year after the creation of the world was not not clear. I think, but but uh, but anyway, the Antichrist would arise, whatever that's going to mean, uh, six thousand years after the creation of the world. It's quite a widespread legend, and um, now uh, according to Two Thessalonians. Uh, there is something and someone that holds back the coming of the Antichrist. Mm-hmm. And um, and the fathers uh, generally held this something and this someone that restrains the coming of the Antichrist mm-hmm. um, to be the Roman Empire and the Roman Emperor. And lots of fathers refer to this. Mm-hmm. And uh, Tertullian, for example, he's not really father because he was a montanist but he's an important early author Tertullian, um uh in the second century he says to the romans yeah we're not anti the roman empire because it's you lot that are holding back the coming of the antichrist so we're keen for you to stay there for the time being thanks thanks very much um and uh, so you got one so, job <laughs> <laughs> so the um but the problem is that um uh The most popular work of chronology in, uh, you know, explaining when things happened in the West was, uh, had been written by St. Jerome. And he based it on something that had been uh, a Greek work of chronology that had been written by this guy, Eusebius of Caesarea, who's a very important church historian. And although Jerome is famous for having translated the Bible into Latin from the Hebrew, when he wrote this chronograph- chronographical work, um, he uh, he hadn't done that yet, and he based it on uh, Eusebius, and Eusebius based it on the Septuagint, and the Septuagint has the Hebrew version of the Bible. Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament, and the, and the, the Hebrew version of the Old Testament, the Greek version, they they they're quite different in regards to the lives and the dates of the very early figures in Genesis, you know, the ones who live for hundreds and hundreds of years. And as a result, there's quite a big discrepancy between how old the world would be if you tried to calculate it uh, based on the Septuagint from how old the world would be if you calculate it based on the Hebrew. And so big is this difference that according to the Septuagint translation calculation, um. The year six thousand after the creation of the world would be the year eight hundred and one A.D., whereas according to the um, according to the translation according to the Hebrew and therefore the Vulgate, uh, the translation the the year six hundred the year six hundred six thousand after the creation of the world would be something around nineteen ninety six. So, um, for, I know someone who was born in 1996, and he said that um, if he is the Antichrist, he he offers he's offered me a job as the false prophet, ah. and I can have a whole wing of his palace complex on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I thought I uh, was
0: going to say Clinton.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Clinton's a bit bit older than that, but the uh, but uh,
0: no, no, so, no, he took um, power. <laughs>
1: Oh yes, yes, good point. Well he's still alive, yeah, so you could never know. But um uh so the um uh anyway, so um uh so, in fact, so so much, but, but even though the Latins were using the Vulgate, and if they bothered to check the Vulgate, they would have seen that it wasn't going to be until the late 1990s that the Antichrist was due to arrive. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they, would, they weren't bothering to see the calculation. They were just using Jerome's uh, work of chronology, which Jerome hadn't bothered to update. So the Latins all thought that the year 6000 uh, AM, as it were, of, of um, of the creation of the world um, was going to be in 801 and uh, and so much concern was there about this that Charlemagne had already had to issue a law telling people to shut up about it because he was worried that there was going to be too much hysteria on the subject um, but now, um, now there was no Roman emperor Right, there was just this woman pretending to be Roman emperor, and the year 801 was not far away, and it looked like the thing that restrains the Antichrist has been taken away. So, so this is this is a recipe for real hysteria now. Mm. Um, now, just to crank it up a bit further, make it even worse. Um, in uh, in 799, so two years later, um, a huge crisis erupted in Rome, and, and the reason for this was that the, the, the then Pope was Pope Leo III, and his predecessor was Pope Adrian I. And Pope Adrian I was from quite a posh family, whereas um, Pope Leo III was not, he was from relatively humble origins. And since the Franks had put the popes in charge of governing central Italy, um, uh, there'd been a lot of competition. This is going to cause huge problems uh, for a very long time, but particularly in about a hundred years after this. But, but the, um but uh, the, the, all the local noblemen were now really obsessed with controlling the papacy because that meant that you actually governed uh, the area that they lived in. Their family would gain control of of, of central Italy, so so it, it starts to. Although the the papal states are supposed to make the popes independent of temporal rulers outside the papal states, they 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 make them very much the plaything. The papal office the plaything of the local nobility inside the papal states because they're all obsessed with getting control of the papacy. So uh, so the relatives of Adrian I were quite irritated that that this nobody, as they saw it, had been elected to the papacy in the form of Leo III and not one of their relatives, so they lost control of the papal office. So uh, one day Leo III was taking part in a procession in 799 through the streets of Rome and they uh, they, used, they they grabbed him a mob a renter mob arranged by Adrian's family uh, grabbed Leo III and uh, gouged his eyes out again you know because as I say lots of Byzantine culture in Rome so eye uh, gouging was was a thing in Rome as well. Who started this? <laughs> uh, now who was it? I think it might have, it might have been Justinian the second actually the one who uh, although he he was into chopping people's noses off but eventually he got his nose chopped off in uh, uh, turn.
0: Just sitting around one day, you know what we should do? Just <laughs> tear people's eyes out.
1: <laughs> so, um, uh, yes. So, so uh, they uh, they drag off uh, Leo the Third and they stick some fake pope in his place. And um, so now it's and, and at this time, um, New Year's Day in, in in those days was the 25th of December, mm-hmm. not the 1st of January. So, um, so it now looked as if, and, and you've got to understand that. Um, what the roman power it is that restra- is that restrains the antichrist was not uh, there was there were differing views in the east they 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 definitely assumed it was the emperor but in the west um leo the great in the fifth century had already said you know um uh really the the, the Rome used to be founded by Romulus and Remus, but now it's been refounded by Peter and Paul. So Romulus and Remus, uh, they, they fought and killed each well, they didn't kill each other. R- Romulus killed Remus over whether whether Rome was going to be called Reims or Rome. Um, and um, and uh, and so so he's got this nice parallelism. He says, that just as uh, as um, the old Rome was, the pagan Rome was founded in the blood of one brother. Uh, of uh, shed by the other, um, so the new Christian Rome uh, has been founded in the blood shed on the same day by Peter and Paul, who were made blo- brothers in blood by their common martyrdom. Mm-hmm. So, 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 so the, so, so, so there's so the, been the rival theories in the West. Either the, either it's the emperor or it's the Pope that restrains the coming of the Antichrist. So, for example, Thomas Aquinas thinks it's the Pope. He says in in his um, commentary on two Thessalonians mm-hmm. he says that the coming of the Antichrist will be presaged by a great revolt against papal authority um, so uh, but either way uh, it's not looking good in 799 because there's this woman pretending to be the Pope pretending to be the Emperor in Constantinople and the Pope has been blinded and deposed in Rome so the two possible restraining powers have been taken away and the Antichrist is due in about six months right <laughs> so so that they're, they're very 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 nervous so, um, however, did they run? Um,
0: did they go to the store and get a lot of toilet paper at this time?
1: Oh, yeah, that was it. You couldn't get a shred of toilet paper in Rome in, in, in late se- 799. So, so, um, uh, so, uh, but Leo the third, um, his eyes are restored miraculously, or, 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 or you know, godless modern historians say weren't gouged out properly or whatever. But the the uh, the, uh, the, the actual contemporary accounts say miraculously restored. But as and as a result, uh, he escapes because they think you know um, he can't see, but he can. So they're not guarding him. They're guarding him on the assumption he's blind, yeah. not on the assumption he can see. So he escapes, and he he gets across the Alps and he goes to see Charlemagne and he says you've got to help me out here this is terrible and uh, so so um Charlemagne decides that uh, well this is quite an opportunity um uh so um so he uh, he accompany sends soldiers to accompany Leo Third back to Rome and um uh and to plonk him back on, on the papal throne. Now, there's a famous Catholic historian called Christopher Dawson, who has a bit of a theory about this, um, which is, I think, quite attractive, which is that um, that Charlemagne, that the popes were getting nervous about Charlemagne because they could see that the Franks were trying to pick fights and split off from Byzantium. And they were worried that the Franks were going to uh, sort of try and establish a sort of make, make the King of the Franks King of the Christians or something. Um, and that would be deeply inappropriate, right? Because the king of the, there's only one king of the church, and that's Jesus Christ. Um, and it's actually particularly appropriate that the senior lay ruler in Christendom should be called emperor, not king, because um, because of the fact that, that, you know, that's a republican a title, uh, um, which is precisely invented so that the not be, he not be king, mm-hmm um and uh, so uh, the, the poets were worried dawson speculates that they were going to be reduced to the status of being chaplains to the to the theocratic uh, frankish king of the christians right so so the fact that there was seemed to be an, a, a vacancy for the title of Roman emperor um, uh, now provided uh, a, an opportunity because if they tied the king of the Franks to the title of Roman emperor, then he would be dependent on the popes for his legitimacy because it was the popes who would be making him Roman because he wasn't actually Roman. He was a barbarian who couldn't read and write very well. Um, uh, so the, um, so uh, now... Before the uh, the attempted deposition of Leo III, they probably would never have attempted this because they would have realized how completely alienating it would have been to the Byzantines. But at this point, they were desperate. So, so the opportunity uh, offered by this to Leo III um, uh, suddenly became terribly attractive. So these Frankish troops go down to Rome. Leo III is installed. He graciously asks that the naughty people who tried to depose him be exiled rather than executed. Um, uh, it's, it's very significantly said that he can't be judged as to whether he's guilty of, the, because they make up the crimes to accuse him of, as, as people do in those days when they're trying to depose somebody, that, that they can't judge whether these are true or false because nobody has the right to judge the Pope. Mm-hmm. So instead, he swears an oath at this synod that he didn't, he never did any of the things that he was accused of doing. And uh, so, th- so this sort of synod, calm local assembly is held. And at this, they discuss the question of what to do about the fact there's no Roman emperor. They fix the fact that there was no pope. They've got the pope back in place. But what are they going to do about the fact that there's no legitimate Roman emperor? So, and this no doubt was agreed over, over coffee uh, back in, in Aachen uh, between Charlemagne and Leo III, anyway. But they, 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 they ask Charlemagne, uh, who's now by now he's arrived in Rome, if he will um, accept the position of Roman emperor. And Charlemagne very humbly. That, that perhaps he could just about see his way to doing that, and um, and then a few days later on Christmas Day, the twenty fifth of December, eight hundred, or according to their reckoning at the time, eight hundred and one. So that's New Year's Day, eight hundred and one. Um, Charlemagne uh, goes to Saint Peter's Basilica uh, for mass, and uh, and he's uh, they've just read the gospel, and he's kneeling down in prayer, and then um, something something mysterious happens so charlemagne had definitely agreed to this in advance but he told his biographer einhard later that if he'd known what was going to happen that day he would never have entered saint peter's basilica and he leaves rome after this and he doesn't come back for the rest of his life he lives for another 14 years but he never comes back to rome so he seems perfectly happy with the title roman emperor and he uses it um but he doesn't um but he's clearly annoyed with the pope so, so so, he's kneeling down praying after the gospel, and the Pope takes a crown, and he lifts it up over Charlemagne's head, and he says to Charles the Augustus, crowned by God great and pacific emperor of the Romans, be life and victory, and then he puts it on, on Charles's head. And all the Romans and the Franks in St. Peter's Basilica and in the in the in the atrium outside, they all shout out the same thing. They they repeat the acclamation to Charles, the Augustus crowned by God, great and pacific, emperor of the Romans, Vitae Victoria, and uh, which is the which is the official acclamation of a Roman emperor. And then the Pope does something which no Pope has ever done before or since, and he prostrates himself in front of of Charlemagne. Which which uh, I think he probably did because he was trying to avoid Charlemagne's right hook, right? Because I think what what had happened was. Is that in, in the in the coronation ceremony in the east, which is the only place that had ever happened, because coronations were instituted in the east just a, like a decade before the Western Empire collapsed. So there'd never been a proper coronation of a Roman emperor in the West.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So so the only ceremony was the Eastern ceremony, and in this Eastern ceremony, the emperor would be acclaimed emperor outside Constantinople, or at least certainly outside of the of the Hagia Sophia. The, the cathedral in Constantinople mm-hmm. but, but uh, um, originally outside the city itself he'd be lifted up on a shield and that whole acclamation thing which I just described to you would happen there um, and then he'd kind of parade through the city and everyone would acknowledge him as emperor and then he'd eventually get to the cathedral the Hagia Sophia and there he would be crowned by the patriarch um, and uh, so it was clear he was already emperor when he was crowned by the patriarch and the and the, and the patriarch was blessing the fact that he was emperor but the way but leo switched it so that the pope said the acclamation and then the people repeated it and by the time they repeated it because he said it as as he put the crown on charlemagne's head the the charlemagne was already emperor so that the, it appeared that the pope had made him emperor right so what he did was he expressed the kind of Augustinian theory of the supremacy of the spiritual over the temporal in the liturgy there, and therefore the superiority ultimately of the popes over the emperors, and this becomes a huge thing in in, in throughout the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. the power of the popes to 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 that you couldn't be emperor until you were crowned by the pope, um, and that becomes a huge part of Western politics and, and an enormous ace in the uh, in the um, in the armory of, of of the popes when when they were dealing with emperors in the west. So, but of course this hideously infuriates the Byzantines, right? This is all up absolutely insulting and it shatters the common worldview that had held together the Greek East and the Latin West up to that point. So now that common worldview had had a bit, a bit like this thing about the word proceed. There'd been a bit of underlying tension in that, Worldview, in the sense that the um, in the sense that the uh, the Greeks um, basically thought the emperor was the leader of the Christian world, and then there was the then there were the patriarchs who were the local leaders of of clerical hierarchical questions, and the patriarch of Rome was the kind of was was the was the was the top-ranking patriarch with, with a primacy of honor over the other ones. And they probably would gr- have admitted that grudgingly enough, that they would admit that, that he had to agree to an ecumenical council being ecumenical for it to really be an ecumenical council. But they definitely, they had, they had basically one emperor, lots of patriarchs with a primacy of honor for the Roman patriarch. That was their kind of view of the world. Whereas the Latins were kind of like, you have the Pope He's the centre of the Christian world. He is supreme, the successor of St. Peter over everybody else. And then you have um then you have the kind of the, the people who run the, the temporal division. And there's the emperor and then there's all the different kings of the Franks and the Visigoths and the the, the various English kings and Bavarians and lombards or whatever and and the emperor has a kind of primacy of honor over these other kings but he doesn't he isn't he isn't just the he isn't the boss who gets to tell everybody what to do right so so it was roughly reversed as they were the mirror images of each other Mm -hmm. but so long as um so long as the Latins still recognized the emperor as having a primacy of honor and so long as the greeks still recognized the uh pope as having a primacy of honor the fact that they thought that the opposite person had the primacy of jurisdiction in the temporal and spiritual orders uh didn't really matter until the whole thing was blown apart the, the fracture was exposed by the pope creating his own emperor on christmas day 800. so so, whereas up to eight hundred, it's the Byzant- it's the Franks constantly trying to pick theological fights with the with the um, with the Byzantines in order to, to uh, declare their independence, as it were. After eight hundred, it switches the other way round. The Byzantines are now more inclined to seek uh, th- theological fights with the Franks. Now, now that could have kicked off straight away, but it didn't. And the reason why it didn't, even though the Byzantines were very annoyed, and uh, is that the um, is that the uh, is that Irene is deposed, and uh, she's the people who the chap who deposes her immediately uh, is um, is also uh, Orthodox in regard to icon, icon, icons, mm-hmm. but he uh, he eventually he gets defeated in battle by the Khan of Bulgaria, who chops his head off and turns his skull into a into a silver vessel, uh, which uh, not very nice. Uh, apparently, Bulgaria is covered in statues of, of this guy Crum crumb the terrible uh, who turned the roman emperor's head into a goblet and he's, he's sort of there with his kind of uh, moscow mule
0: i drink out of that guy's head <laughs>
1: <laughs> but obviously that's quite bad in terms of prestige and uh, eventually um uh, so in in uh, 813 the uh that they go through a couple more emperors after the crisis created by this defeat, but in 813, um, an iconoclast gets control of the empire again, and he's like, you know, look what happens if you don't if you worship icons, chaps. God gets ang- angry, and your head gets turned into a goblet. So, you know, we need to go back to uh, to you know stripping the churches, and uh, so there's this second period of iconoclasm in Byzantium, but that ends uh, in uh, 842 when uh, when the emperor dies and uh, there's been three iconoclast emperors the last of them dies and his um his uh consort theodora um uh she ends up ruling again like the last time with Constantine the sixth she ends up ruling for her son michael the third who has not reached the age of majority In fact, he's only two years old when his dad dies um and so his mom is ruling everything and she restores the icons and so the following year they have a little kind of local synod thing uh, it was not, uh, and, and, they, and they, they say Nicaea II is back in place iconoclasm is over and apparently it kind of lost steam by this point anyway no one was that interested in it um, and the, sort of the theological and devotional argument had been won mm-hmm. by the icon duels anyway um, but that is the event which is the, the, the um, 843 restoration of the icons is the event which is celebrated as the triumph of orthodoxy in the Byzantine liturgy on the second Sunday of Lent um, every year and if you're in a cathedral or a monastery, they have this great ceremony where they anathematize all heretics in the history of the church. They are to he who says, "Well, And then they go. It's great, really good. You can watch it on YouTube. <laughs> yeah, but um, uh, so um, we should definitely institute that in the West uh, when our present <laughs> difficulties have been dealt with. Um, but so, uh, but the um, uh, so. Um, uh, yes, so the, um, uh, so, icon- so the Iconoclastic controversy is over, the Iconodules are back in control, and Iconoclasm never gains control again. Um, uh, Theodora is, is ruling uh, in Constantinople for her son, and uh, that all goes on fine for 10 years or whatever, well, more than 10 years, um, uh, until, um, until uh, 856. So the problem is that um, young uh, Michael III grows up, and um, he apparently, uh, he's corrupted by growing up in in the context of absolute power. Uh, He's known to history as Michael the Drunkard. There's some dispute as to how fair this epithet is, but uh, apparently it's not entirely unfair. And it doesn't seem to be disputed that he was pretty irreligious in many respects he built some nice churches apparently but he also used to hold drunken parties at which they they play acted the divine liturgy in a sacrilegious fashion to show their contempt for the gray-bearded clerics etc etc and um so eventually now uh he uh his mother is very disapproving of this um she she uh she she's got a, a mistress who she doesn't get on with she's not pleased he has a mistress and she doesn't get on with her either so uh the mother is trying to push him into marrying a respectable young lady which he does but he doesn't um he doesn't uh have anything to do with her he spends his whole time with the mistress so it's very humiliating and um and uh so his 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 mother's theodora her brother bardas who is a very dodgy character decides that he has an opportunity here because Bardas is a sort of has dodgy private life and, and and likes parties as well, and he decides that he could probably um, uh, inveigle himself into the affections of his nephew and gain political power by encouraging him to uh, throw off the shackles of his nagging mother. So, um, so eventually in eight five six. Uh, Well, the the previous year, 855, um, uh, Bardas and Michael III murder the eunuch who has been the chief minister to his mother uh, in in the palace, uh, to the horrendous distress and humiliation of his mother. And then the following year, they they depose his mother altogether as regent and have her packed off to a monastery, at least temporarily. And uh, Bardas persuades his nephew to have him made Caesar, which is the the sort of vice, the no pun intended, vice emperor um, uh, title um, in, in the Byzantine Empire. So, and then Bardas kind of runs the empire, uh, and and gets to indulge his own private vices, while Michael III can spend his whole time partying, and Uncle Bardas will look after it, and, and an irritating old mother has been sent off to the convent. So it's obviously not very edifying. Um, and uh, so so this is some um, this is what's going on at this point now, but this this is uh, pushed into a crisis uh, two years later. Um, because uh, so in eight five eight, because the the patriarch Constantinople is a guy called Ignatius, who is who was put in there after the uh, after the re- the icon the restoration of the icons. The, the, there's a patriarch who restores the icons called Methodius, and he tries to kind of uh, back at the time of the triumph of Orthodoxy, he tries to kind of uh, map a path between um, between uh, sort of ultimate general triumphant uh victory of the iconodules while not completely alienating the people who compromised themselves during the reign of the iconoclasts Mm -hmm. um but this annoys the people who've been faithful and loyal to the true faith through the second iconoclastic crisis are irritated um because to see all these nasty time servers who gave in uh still being there in place and um and and they're a sort of source of instability so when this patriarch methodius dies uh, the Theodora um, decided to put in Ignatius, who was more associated with the party of, of the, the kind of uh, the never say die, um, uh, true to the true faith to the death chaps. Uh, in and um, Ignatius was actually um, was actually the grandson of of the emperor whose head was turned into a goblet, and the son of one of his successors, and and uh, the the one who was deposed uh, when iconoclasm was reintroduced, and at that time. Poor old Ignatius had been castrated uh, and packed off to a monastery so that he wouldn't be a. So this is another alternative to gouging your eyes off, or chopping your nose off. Another way of, of rendering someone not a threat to the regime, but not killing him, was to chop other parts of his anatomy off. So, so he was that that happened to Ignatius, and he was sent off as a kid to be a monk. So he'd been a monk for all these years, and now he's he's hauled out of his monastery and he's made the patriarch of Constantinople. But he was pretty pious, and um, and he had a he had a feud. Uh, with one of the kind of time server establishment guys called Gregory Asbestas, who was the Bishop of Syracuse in Sicily, which was still at that time controlled by the Byzantine Empire, and uh, which was entangled with this uh, with this argument between the time servers and the and the, and the heroic iconodules, and um, so and, and he was quite pious, and he was he, he was very sympathetic to the, the 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 Empress Theodora who put him there, and he was uh, and he was extremely worried. Um, about the, the new kind of hedonistic regime in the palace. Mm-hmm. And so two years after this was established, one day Bardas, a dodgy uncle Bardas comes to the Hagia Sophia in order to go to, um, go to divine liturgy there um, and by this point it's notorious that uh, Bardas is um, having an affair with the widow of his son so his, one of his sons had died and he rather fancied the look of, of his son's late his late son's wife and so Bardas was shacked up with, with his uh, daughter-in-law and everybody knew about it and this was the last straw for Ignatius so he said uh, he, he barred Bardas, from entering the Hagia Sophia. And Bardas was obviously absolutely furious, public humiliation, how dare he, and uh, he goes off to see his, his nephew, the emperor, to complain about this, and demands that Ignatius must be deposed. Now Ignatius has enemies because he's more of a hardliner than, uh, than his predecessor, Methodius. And he's got particularly this, this uh, Gregory Asbestos guy who hates his guts because um, he's, he's, he's uh, um, deposed him as, as Archbishop of Syracuse. So, um, so they're looking around for someone to replace Ignatius. Now, there's a big, big argument among historians, um, which probably can't be ever definitively resolved, but uh, as to whether Ignatius was just deposed, or whether or not he uh, abdicated, and if he abdicated, whether or not it counts because he was forced to abdicate, uh, and it doesn't really count. Mm-hmm. Um, it's probably that he was forced to abdicate, and so it doesn't really count, rather than that he wasn't ab- that he didn't abdicate, or that he voluntarily abdicated. Um, and um, uh, and the the uh, the, the anti Ignatius party around Bardas also like to whisper about the fact that that theodora had put him in there um uh put him in there without there being a proper election in the first place because she was like trying to you know find um she was trying to avoid trouble uh, between these different parties so she just kind of put him in there right so so there's lots of argument as to who's the legitimate patriarch who abdicated who was properly elected who wasn't properly elected etc etc but um in the midst of this uh they can't find a bishop or a a senior ecclesiastic of any kind who's willing to take the job of um, patriarch of Constantinople, because it's kind of poison chalice, it's all very fishy, the circumstances. So what they do is they get this guy who's a relative of Bardas uh, called Mm Photios, who is the head of the Byzantine civil service. So he's just a layman, but he's a famously erudite layman. In fact, he wrote this thing where it's kind of like a catalogue, annotated catalogue of all his books, which has survived which is very impressive, and it contains lots of volumes of, of works that we've lost. So there are many things in the ancient world where we only know what's in them because of the, because of the note appended to the catalogue by Photios. Um, but one thing that he doesn't really, um, he's not really interested in, is Latin stuff. He shares the general ignorance and contempt of the Latins um, of the Byzantines of this period. So they persuade Photios that he ought to become the uh, patriarch of Constantinople because no one else would take the job. And he's a reliable government man who's going to do it. Um, and no one could say he isn't clever. So make
0: the 19th again. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So he agrees. Uh, he agrees to do this, and um, and they they also struggling to find someone to consecrate him as a bishop. Not only as a bishop, but of course he has to be consecrated to all the minor orders and the diaconate and the priesthood as well, because he has no ecclesiastical standing at this point at all. So, but Gregory Asbestas, Bestas who hates uh, Ignatius. He's like, I'll do it, I'll do it. Um, and uh, so, um, so they, uh, so he is duly consecrated as. Patriarch Constantinople on Christmas Day uh, 858 in the Hagia Sophia. And um, the, uh, the great, uh, I don't even heard of Adrian Fortescue. He's, he wrote the sort of standard work on how to celebrate the old rite, um, uh, the ceremonies of the Roman rite. The ceremonies of the Roman rite it's described, is it called, I think? Um, but he, uh, he also wrote these great works on the Eastern churches. He, he lived at the beginning of the 20th century who's was very, very erudite. He kind of did this kind of Indiana Jones tour of the Ottoman Empire to t- sort of visit all the all the, all the surviving different Eastern churches. But he he points out um, uh, he points in, in many respects what he writes about Photius is as some of the factual basis has been superseded or kicked kicked in dust around uh, in subsequent scholarly debates. But he it's a very uh, entertaining description of of um, of these events, and he points out that some. Um, uh, that Photius is simultaneously excommunicated automatically three times on the same day because he's he's excommunicated for being automatically for being ordained to many different degrees of order without waiting the proper periods that you're supposed to wait between the different levels of ordination. He's excommunicated for being ordained to take over a diocese that somebody else already legitimately occupies, and he's excommunicated for being ordained to the episcopacy by a man who is himself. Uh, a suspended, excommunicated bishop. Right. So, so um, it's a bit of a train wreck in that respect. Mm-hmm. But at this point, I mean, things are really bad. Right. The Mediterranean is completely dominated by the Muslims. Communication between Rome and um, and Constantinople is really difficult. And uh, in addition to that, um, uh, there was there was difficult relations anyway between Pope Nicholas the Great, who's the then Pope, and uh, Ignatius, the guy who's just been unjustly deposed. Um, because um, if you remember during the iconoclastic controversy, the, the iconoclastic emperors took juris- purported to take jurisdiction over Sicily and southern Italy and, and the Balkans away from the Pope and gave it to the Patriarch Constantinople. So the Popes uh want to uh, have the question of whether this Gregory Asbestos guy is rightfully the Bishop of Syracuse decided by them because it's in Sicily and that's their patch but of course the Patriarchs Constantinople even though they resolved the iconoclast plastic thing they didn't give back the jurisdiction so they they think that it's their patch so there's already a dispute going on between ignatius and, and pope nicholas about who should decide about gregory asbestos so there's lots of confusion going on and now ignatius has been locked up and this Photius guy has installed himself as patriarch of constantinople and um so uh he um uh so he he has he has a sort of local synod to try and legitimise his his accession to the patriarchate, and then uh, and then the um, the pope uh, finds out about this and what, uh, finds out what's been going on, but it takes ages. So so he he sends a couple of um, a couple of legates to go and investigate what's happening. So they they go over to Constantinople, which also takes them ages to do, and they eventually get there in eight six one, and. Um, and uh, it's not clear what happens. They they get com- they're supposed to just be there on a fact finding mission, but somehow they either get overwhelmed or talked round by Photius, or he drags them off to one of Bardas' favourite clubs and gets some compromising Polaroid photographs of them or something. I don't know what it is he does, but he somehow he gets the legates to sort of preside a council, which they don't have any mandate to do, which then declares that this focus guy has legitimately succeeded Ignatius and is the true patriarch of Constantinople. Now in the meantime, Ignatius's friends have managed to kind of slip Notes through the bars to the prison, and and Ignatius has managed to get messages out to Pope Nicholas back in Rome. So when uh, so when the um, the legates come back looking suspiciously tanned and sort of and 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 uh, and, and well fed, uh, and say it's all fine, this folks, this guy's great, yeah, absolutely great. We we had a bit of a council. I know that wasn't really what we we're supposed to do, but we have said it's okay. And uh, but by this time Nicholas is in possession of the actual facts. So Nicholas is furious the legates get into big trouble and um he holds a council in rome in 863 at which he decides that ignatius is in fact the guy who is in the right now of course the cynical reading of this is that the popes are always keen to side with the other guy in any dispute in constantinople so that they in the hope that the other guy will eventually win and that will provide them an opportunity to us to show that they had jurisdiction over constantinople which they always suspect the uh the, the um, byzantines of not admitting so anyway, so, so is furious because having used these legates for his local council he's relied on papal uh, authority in this matter in order to try and buttress the legitimacy of his position so he can't say oh, well this is none of the pope's business because otherwise what was he doing holding that synod with the legates right um but the pope but, but nicholas the uh, the great, has now decided against him in this synod in Rome in 863. And so Photius is, is, is uh, in an embarrassing situation. What does he do? He can't just say it's none of the Pope's business because he's already given up on that possible argument. So he decides that what he needs to do is accuse Pope Nicholas of being a heretic, so he decides to, and says well because if, if he 's a heretic, then you know, like Honorius, we know that, that it 's possible because um, he 's been condemned by Constantinople three, and that was reiterated by uh, Nicaea two so he think so if we can if we can uh, fit him up with a charge of heresy, then I can say that he isn 't really the pope. And uh, and and therefore, his opinion on whether I'm the patriarch or not is a, is neither here nor there, and my position will be secure. I'm thinking so, dodgeball.
0: Uh, That's a bold move, Connor. Let's see how it pays uh,
1: off. <laughs> <laughs> so, Photius is scrabbling around for something to charge uh, Pope Nicholas with heresy over. And um, so, you know, there's already been tension over, like, the divergence of, of the practices between the Byzantine East and Byzantine West. But... Uh, apparently Photius thinks that unleavened bread and fasting on Saturdays and married clergy, which are the main sort of big differences, um, uh, is not going to cut it for a, for a deposing accusation of heresy. So he decides to claim that the filioque is a heresy. Right, um, uh, so he 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 unearths, you know, perhaps because he's so erudite, he must have read these monothelite guys who tried to claim that it was a heresy, and he think, well, this'll do. This is about the Trinity. This is, you know, this is, this is as heretical as you can get. So, so he, um, so he then invents the doctrine that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father alone. Now, now, this is not what the Byzantines had held. The the, the Latins, because of the different use of the of the of the word "proceed," the Byzantines uh, had expressed themselves in terms of the Spirit proceeding from the Father through the Son, whereas the whereas the Latins uh, has expressed themselves in terms of the Spirit proceeding from the Father and the Son. But in fact, these things mean the same thing. It's just the word "proceed" means something slightly different. Substantively, it's the same. The idea, but the um, but the uh, the use of the Filioque did seem shocking to the Byzantines and so Photius decides to exploit this and claim uh, and introduce this new doctrine which he claims is deeply conservative um, that the spirit proceeds from the father alone. Um, and, uh, and so this is where the origin of the filioque controversy. Previously, it was just the filioque misunderstanding. Uh, from this point onwards, it becomes the filioque controversy. And so, in um, 867, he holds another local council in Constantinople, at which he declares that Pope Nicholas is a heretic and that he is deposed. And, uh, and yea, Photius, defender of the true Orthodox faith concerning the Holy Spirit, is, is the rightful Patriarch of Constantinople. Now, um, uh, Nicholas the Great never finds out about this because of these terrible travel problems between Rome and Constantinople. By the time news reaches Rome, uh, Nicholas is dead, and um, so it looks like um, uh, the Great Schism could have just happened then, and that would have been that. But um, but there is indeed a schism, the Photian Schism, which therefore occurs as a result of this attempt to depose. Um, Pope Nicholas, and of course the, the, and as a result of, of Pope Nicholas um, finding in favour of, of Patriarch Ignatius um, but uh, Byzantine politics uh, then intervene in order to weirdly confuse and diffuse the situation because um, uh, the Emperor Michael III has got bored of Uncle Bardas and he has a new friend called Basil who is a circus strongman from macedonia you can't make this stuff up and uh he's his um his, uh, his famous party trick is to be able to take a great big kind can of cannonball-sized boulder and throw it in the air and catch it. Uh, and, and, and Michael thinks this is great, and he's really good at parties, and he can drink like a fish. And, uh, and so, so he thinks that, that, ba- that, that, that Basil is just this splendid fellow. So he starts becoming all pally with Basil. And uh, and, and Bardas is getting a bit nervous that he's losing his influence over, over his nephew now because he's got a new favourite drinking body. Uh, and uh, Basil can see the bar. Bardas is nervous, and and that Bardas might be a threat to him, and so Basil persuades Michael to have Bardas murdered, um, and uh, and to make Basil instead Caesar. So Michael makes Basil Caesar, which is crazy because Basil is just as like a circus strongman. He's ethnically Armenian immigrant uh, of completely humble origin from uh, from a family that lived in in uh, Macedonia, which is still part of the empire, and. Um, and so he's now Caesar, and uh, but then quite soon after that, um, uh, and Caesar is kind of—it doesn't exactly entitle you to succeed, mm-hmm. but it's—it's it's in the absence of anyone else, it kind of entitles you to succeed as emperor. And uh, so, so very shortly after that, um, uh, um, Basil uh, in eight six seven, he decides that that Michael might be now getting bored of him. And he doesn't want the same thing happening to him as happened to Bardas. So, uh, so Basil's like, fair enough, and kills Michael III. So that's the end of Michael III. And Basil, and he has himself Basil, uh, possibly illiterate um, uh, circus strongman, uh, um, uh, proclaimed you know, you can't. One thing about the Byzantine Empire, it was definitely meritocratic in a slightly scarily Darwinian way. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> and um, uh, so Basil is acclaimed emperor. Now, of course, his position is extremely dodgy. I mean, you look at his CV and it's not edifying. And uh, so, so just, as, um, just as Photius had turned to uh, papal authority to cover over the cracks in, in his claim to be Patriarch Constantinople, so Basil now wants to turn to papal authority to cover over the cracks in his claim to be emperor. So he's like, well, well I can, uh, if I resolve this schism with Rome, then basically you can, that'll, that'll, that'll please a big chunk of people in Constantinople and it'll create a party for me and, um, and it'll, it'll, it'll smooth over the dubiousness of my accession to power. So, so that's what he does. So he basically writes a kind of blank check letter to Rome and says, says uh, he deposes Photius and says, right, you're out because I need to make friends with the Pope so you'll have to go. And uh, so he removes Photius and he writes a letter to Rome and says, look, we'll do anything. Uh, a bit like Justin the first did all those years ago with, mm-hmm. uh, with um, Paul Mazdus. And in fact, Rome is like, yes, we only only once every few hundred years do we get these blank checks from emperors in Constantinople. You've got to make use of them when you get them. So so they so they hold a synod in Rome and that they, they impose the most stringent criteria. They say nobody who was ever ordained, like Photius, is excommunicated. And he, if he repents, he can be reconciled, but he can only ever be a layman. And anyone, no one who he has ordained can ever hold any office. And if they repent, they can be restored, but only as laymen. And here is a, you know, because Photius has been in charge de facto for 10 years. So there's a lot of people there who he's, he's been busily building up a party for himself. So, so, um, and that they get the formula of Hormazdus, which was used back in the time of the Emperor Justin to reconcile the Northeastern bishops after the Acacian schism. And they get a kind of uh, a version of that with some extra bits on. On and they say, and no, we're going to, they send some legates to Constantinople to hold an ecumenical council to resolve the, the question of Photius's position, and uh, they probably ho- intended to resolve the question of the filioque, but in the end that didn't happen but the, uh, um, and they said, hey, you've got to sign this formula or you can't be in the ecumenical council, and so they impose the most draconian conditions they possibly can, because they think they've got, they've got it's the ideal situation and they've got to make, make use of it now. So when they get there, um, uh, uh, by this time Pope Nicholas is dead and uh, Pope Adrian II is pope. And when they when they get when the legates get to Constantinople, I think um, Basil is kind of like, oh gosh. I mean I didn't expect you to go quite this far, and this is going to be really tricky. And so, so the so the, the the fourth council of Constantinople is duly summoned and uh, but they find it the, the 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 terms which the Holy See is insisting on are so draconian that they find it really difficult to find enough bishops who are willing to accept the terms because and also so many bishops have been appointed by Photius, in the meantime, that there aren't many bishops who they, who even could accept the terms, because because the the ones who were appointed by Photius are not supposed to hold office. So, so the, the according to um, the Holy See's terms, so that they have several. The first few sessions, there's like a dozen or, or a few dozen bishops. It goes up by tiny increments until finally, like session eight or nine, they they've got a hundred and something, like a okay. hundred and five or something I can't remember what number it is but it's it's not as much as 110 it's more than 100 it's it's in um bishops finally it looks enough to kind of be an ecumenical council but but it's um and uh but the um Photius refuses to speak, so they, they haul him up in front of the council to, to sort of uh, try him for his naughtiness. Although the Roman legates are like, don't even really want there to be a trial because they say, well, uh, we've already dealt with it in Rome. Your job here is to shut up and do what you're told by the Pope. So, so there's a bit of tension over that anyway. Photius refuses to even answer. He won't speak to anyone. He'll only speak to the um, representatives of the emperor. Which is fitting as he's a creature of the of imperial politics. But but so so he replies to the representatives of the emperor, but he won't reply to any of the ecclesiastical functionaries there. And um so they uh So they enact uh, various measures about uh, how naughty it is to try and accuse a patriarch of heresy without proper due process, and they condemn a heresy, an obscure heresy, which would claim there's two human souls. Is that actually quite an important definition, that there's only one human soul? But what the heresy... Uh, the, at the time in Constantinople was that led to this condemnation is is, is seems very obscure. But anyway, um, it's it's the most probably in some ways the most significant doctrinal point. They they reiterate as is conventional for ecumenical councils all the um, all the uh, condemnations of the previous councils, uh, including a recapitulation of the, of the condemnation of Pope Honorius. In fact, it's the most ironically because it's the because the Orthodox don't accept. the fourth council of Constantinople, it's the most explicit of all the condemnations of Honorius in in definitely saying that he was personally guilty of heresy. And um, uh, so that apparently resolves everything, although it's tricky because there's a lot of bad feeling. And um, but uh, at the end, uh, there's a kind of sting in the tail because um, the Bulgarians uh, have decided to convert to Christianity and they've been playing off the Byzantines against the, the the popes, seeing which who they can get the best deal out of. And this is building up a lot of tension because Bulgaria is another one of these places which is supposed to be in the Patriarchate of Rome, but which has been stolen by the Patriarchate of Constantinople, and uh, and the popes are are very so that they restore Ignatius and they jolly well expect Ignatius to be grateful, and uh, and recognise that they are the rightful uh, that the that the is part of the Roman Patriarchate, but instead Ignatius immediately goes and do- cuts a deal with the Bulgarians for them to kick out their Latin missionaries, and accept only the um, only the Byzantines, which is why the Bulgarians are Orthodox rather than Catholic uh, to this day Um, so so it's all left a little bit tense, it's apparently been resolved but in in the end it isn't now the reason why it isn't uh, is because Ignatius doesn't live that much longer and um, and relations with the popes, are, in the, the fact, the the papal legates uh, are, are in a are in a sh- uh, are taken captive by pirates on the way back from the council, and it takes ages for the council to be confirmed. Although it does get confirmed, um, uh, on the when was it? What's the day that it gets confirmed again? I've forgotten the name. It's, it's in it's in um, 871 anyway. Um, there's a letter in which uh, it's confirmed, um, but. Uh, um, Photius dis, uh, rather cleverly writes this genealogical work, so he's now living in exile, he writes this genealogical work, completely fraudulent genealogical work, about the history of Basil I's family, who, as we've seen, are complete plebs from Macedonia. But he discovers, during his researches, that in fact they're not complete plebs after all, but really he's descended not only from He's descended from Tiridates III, the first ever Christian king of Armenia, who converted even before Constantine, and is really prestigious, and he's actually unbelievably posh. And at the same time, uh, he's also descended from Constantine. So he produces this amazing, uh, completely fabricated genealogical tree, which is then handed over to Basil. And Basil's, oh, this is good. You know, perhaps I've misjudged you, Photius. You're clearly a very talented man. <laughs> and, um, so, uh, and Ignatius is getting on a bit anyway. Um, so, uh, so when Ignatius dies, um, uh, Photius uh, Basil decides to put Photius back in as patriarch in 877. And uh, but I mean, Photius has been condemned in the most extreme terms by the Fourth Council of Constantinople, so it's completely ridiculous. Um, but what you've got to realise is that Rome is about to descend into chaos. Right by the time these events happen, there's a new pope, Pope John the Eighth. He ends up uh, his his pontificate ends um in 882 with him being poisoned um and and that then begins this horrendous period in the history of the papacy when the whole thing becomes a, a ridiculous kind of soap opera of the worst kind governed by the um all the local dodgy roman families you've got lots of 18 year old popes uh, there's a pope who exhumes his predecessor and puts his corpse on trial um John the Twelfth died while committing adultery. Um, uh, I mean, one of the popes sold the papacy to his uncle. I mean, it's it's like there's there's a whole period. Uh, absolutely, it's called the Papal Dark Ages, and it's absolutely the pornocracy, the rule by prostitutes, and um, and it's absolutely terrible. So so think the situation is deteriorating in Rome, and um and and so they basically agree to the restoration. Well, the restoration the from their perspective, the first appointment of Photius now as legitimate patriarch in Constantinople. But Photius has not retracted his accusation that the filioque is a heresy, and he's never admitted that he was illegitimately patriarch in the first place. And um, so the Pope, Pope John VIII, sends some legates over to uh, regularize Photius' appointment as as, uh, patriarch. But again, like he did last time, Photius says, oh great legates, we're gonna have an ecumenical council. So he holds, Constantinople point zero in, uh, in eight, uh, 879 to 880, right, and, and this is, um, and, and this basically repudiates the previous council. Well, whether it does or not is not clear. It certainly completely restores and rehabilitates Photius. In the last few sessions, according to the Greek Acts, it repudiates the previous version of Constantinople 4. However, we do have some, leg- some letters from Photius from a few years later, in which he still seems to be trying to get the popes to quash the original Constantinople IV. So it looks as if um, uh, th- those th- the parts of the pseudo-Constantinople IV, which quash the real Constantinople IV, are actually forgeries, uh, which is certainly not beyond Photius. Um, and, uh, and so... Um, uh, but but it causes enormous confusion in the West because because of the fact that because of the fact that Rome descends into chaos for 150 years after this point, uh, there's there's kind of like no one's quite clear what happened there and which is the real Constantinople IV, and so Photius gets himself installed again as patriarch, apparently in good standing, um, and uh, busily propagating his dodgy views, and no one's doing anything about it in Rome because it's chaos, and. Um, and and so the whole thing is left in this weird state of, of non resolution. Um and um in the end Photius doesn't die in his bed as patriarch because um uh, because um uh this is very odd. But Michael the third, Michael the drunkard, you know remember we mentioned his mistress, who uh who he had been forced he'd been forced to marry a respectable girl but he carried on hanging around with his mistress eventually he either gets bored of his mistress or he decides it looks too fishy and uh he forces uh, uh basil the strong man before he became emperor to marry his mistress right and um uh which i don't think basil was very pleased about but anyway so he has to he has to marry the mistress eudokia and uh, and then nine months later um he has a son she has a son leo and it's extremely ambiguous as to whether or not the the, the real father of this son is uh, is basil or is the emperor michael iii but by this point of course michael iii has been murdered by basil so basil is reigning as emperor and he founds this new extremely successful dynasty the macedonian dynasty uh, but his eldest son and heir is looking suspiciously like he isn't really his son, but is actually the son of the man that he murdered. Where's Murray Purvis
0: when you need (laughs) him?
1: So, um, so relations between uh, um, Leo and Basil are not good. And, um, and I think Leo eventually may clock that Basil may not actually be daddy after all. And, uh, and, uh, and Basil is much more favoring of his younger sons who are definitely his. And, um, but eventually, in in mysterious circumstances that may or may not involve foul play, um, uh, Basil dies, and uh, Leo becomes the Emperor Leo the Sixth. The some possibility that he may have bumped off Basil in order to ensure that he wasn't, in turn, himself bumped off in favour of of his 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 more authentic younger brothers. Um, uh, so, um, the, uh,
0: the uh, crypts got, got nothing on these guys. <laughs>
1: So uh, at that point, uh, Leo the Sixth seems to lose all interest in Photius's career, perhaps because he's not very interested in Photius's ridiculously fraudulent genealogy proving the descent of his father from Constantine and Tiridates III, when his real father was in fact Michael III, who uh, may not have been an amazing guy, but was at least from a posh Byzantine family and not, and not, not from a family not of a so Photius uh, is packed off into retirement again, and um, so the the question, which even more, but but he isn't deposed in. They don't have another synod or anything to declare that he was deposed after all in the first place or whatever happened. Um, so so the question of what exactly Photius's status really was is left in complete obscurity, and and the question of the status of the of the of the real fourth council of Constantinople is left in great obscurity as well. Now. Even if those last few sessions of the pseudo council are authentic, it doesn't matter because you can't. uh, No pope can repudiate a a previous ecumen. You can't un-ecumenicize a council, right? Of course, the liberals love this, right? Because they think, oh yeah, we could, we could, we could make everything apart from Vatican III not really be an ecumenical council. Um, And uh, um, but no, you can't do that. Uh, The whole point about papal infallibility is that papal, in fact, uh, papal infallibility when it was first fully theologically worked out in the late Middle Ages uh, was, it was the Franciscans who were pushing it in order to make it impossible for the popes to undo previous infallible declarations. So so one of the papal infallibility isn't just a kind of superpower that the popes have. It's also a great restraint on, on papal authority because they can't undo things which have been infallibly done by their predecessors. So anyway, but as a result, this kicked up a lot of confusion as to the status of Constantinople IV. But because Photius ends up deposed, it never, and because the popes are spending their time, uh, you know, partying and committing adultery instead, uh, in the uh, 10th century, instead of um, worrying about the niceties of, of theology and ecclesiastical politics, um, uh, they don't. Uh, the, the question never gets resolved. So the result, so the result of all this is that um, Constantinople IV isn't properly recognised as an ecumenical council in the East and is only confusedly recognized as an economic in the West for a while until the high medieval canon lawyers in the 12th century look through all the documents and are like, hang on, uh, and <laughs> work out what actually was going on. Um, but it also means that there's a big Fotsian party in the East who are adherents of this new heresy that the spirit proceeds from the father alone, invented by Photius to justify his refusal to accept the verdict of Pope Nicholas the Great. And it's lying around there, waiting for the next time there's a quarrel between the Byzantines and the Pope to be used to create a great schism, which indeed it does. And so, so, so eventually, it, for, for other completely political reasons, um, Photius's uh, bespoke heresies are dug up again Um, uh, in the uh, 11th century, uh, at the time of the quarrel between Pope Leo IX and Michael Serellarius, Patriarch Constantinople, uh, which leads to what we call the Great Schism. But really, that was a breaking out, again, of the quarrel over Photius. So Constantinople IV appears to be a sort of administrative council discussing a very obscure, specific question about the legitimacy of this one patriarch, or pseudo-patriarch, Photius. But in fact, the reason why that administrative um, question arose, or at least not the reason it arose, but but in the in the entangled with that administrative question is this question over the filioque, which is not resolved at Constantinople 4 and, and as a result is is lying around there waiting to blow up in every, everybody's faces in the 11th century. So there you are, Constantinople
0: IV. Wow, I appreciate Dr. Finister, and <laughs> next up is the Lateran One, right?
1: That's right. Yes. We're All right. crossing the Adriatic.
0: Well, get, everyone, get this book, uh, Integralism by him and Father Crean. Fantastic read. Uh, Thank you. It's one of those things that we need to get back in the church to make Catholicism great again or the world great again. <laughs> <laughs> Doc, till next time. God bless.